Well, good morning. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I missed you last week. I was gone in Orange County uh, visiting our sister church in Newport Beach down there. And they send their greetings. And it was great to worship with them, but it was sad uh, to not be with you. But I got to spend five great days with my daughter. Um, well, one of the most pressing questions that faces our society today is this. What is the role of faith in public life? We live in a multicultural society uh, that's becoming more multicultural. And so, uh, and so the question is, is, is what is the role that faith can play in public life? Should, should our public life be a monolith? In other words, should, should it be all the same? And if, if so, then, then which, which faith should win out? Should, should we suppress anyone who doesn't worship the triune God? Or should it be Eastern religion that wins out and anyone who doesn't follow Eastern spirituality should be suppressed? Or should it be, um, should it be Islam? Uh, or should it be secularism? Which is what ends up happening when faith is retreats into the private sphere. Which is what's actually happening now. Like, what is the role of faith in public life? And, and how should Christians think about that question? How should they even answer that question? It's a really pressing question that's before us today. Well, I think that I think that a beginning to an answer, and it's just a beginning, comes from the passage that was just read for us in Matthew chapter 5. And I hope, I hope that it will give you somewhat of an orientation to how to think about this question as we move out into, into the world. Well, let me pray for us. God, your word is truth and life. We ask that you would open up the truth and give us words of life that we may live. We need you to live. And so I ask that in light of that, the, med uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' name, who is our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, one of the majors that's actually like didn't exist 10 years ago and has now gone gangbusters across universities across America and universities across America is, um, is the study of positive psychology. Now, positive psychology is just a fancy word for the study of happiness. Because here's the thing, we all want to know what it means to be happy and how to be happy. It's actually like one of the chief questions that we have. That's why uh, from Duke to Yale to places across America, uh, people are studying happiness, the science of happiness, because we've got we've to boil it down to a science, right? And as people do so, there are various answers that are given, but a, a couple of things kind of always rise to the surface. Um, one is the irony that those who pursue happiness don't usually find it. It's one thing. It's very elusive. But another thing is this. The people who seem to be the most happiest in life, uh, the most fulfilled, the ones who are flourishing, well, they are those who, um, 
who have uh, a deep sense of belonging and community connections, one thing. And the second thing are they, they have meaningful work. That there's something that they do, that they get up to do, that, that they feel like contributes to the world, their neighbor. But that's something that's very important to our sense of, of flourishing. Uh, Amy Reznesky is a professor at Yale School of Management, and she talks about um, she talks about three ways to view your work. One is as a job, like I'm just paying the bills. One is as a career, I'm climbing up the ladder, and then a third way is as a calling or vocation. And, and what separates that is this sense that one has this emotional attachment because they feel that the thing that they're doing matters for the life of the world. Uh, and this is where human flourishing and happiness is usually found. Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, he uh, goes around and gives graduation addresses through, uh, at the end of graduation season. And in his graduation addresses, he says, the most important question that you are going to be, uh, that's going to determine whether or not you have a fulfilling life is this one. It's the Friday evening question and the Monday morning question. Friday evening, do you have a community to go home to that knows you and loves you? And Monday morning, do you have meaningful work? Not just work that pays well. Not just work that gives you a sense of status. But work that, that's important in the sense that it contributes to the flourishing of society. Michael Lewis calls a calling an activity that you find so compelling that you wind up organizing your entire self around it. Often to the detriment of your life outside of it. It's just something that you are caught up in. Well, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, as um, New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington calls it, is a, a sermon about human flourishing. The intro to the Sermon on the Mount is those Beatitudes, which we studied last week, which can be translated blessed or happy or even flourishing. See, this is Jesus' vision of what human flourishing looks like. And if you want to flourish, you have to have a vocation. You have to have a calling. And I have good news for you. In the words that were just read, Jesus gives his vocation to his disciples. Here is his disciples' vocation. Here is their calling. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. So I want to do two things this morning. I want to look at the nature of this calling, and then I want to look at the implications of this calling. First, the nature of this calling. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, that's actually shocking if you consider it. I mean, just consider all the things that salt would have been used for in Jesus' day. There's no refrigeration, right? So salt is a preservative. Salt preserves things. 
This is actually probably one of the reasons why in the Old Testament um, salt was used. Did you know this? Salt was used in covenant rituals. So when people would make a, a relational bond together and they would bind themselves together, they would use salt because salt was supposed to preserve or symbolize this lasting relationship. Uh, God even tells the people of Israel, all my sacrifices that you offer to me are to be seasoned with salt. And salt. The covenant that God makes with David that he would have a house and lineage that would be perpetual is called a covenant of salt. See, salt preserves things. Maybe Jesus is saying, you are to be a preservative in this world. You are the salt of the earth. Salt also purifies things. And it kind of stings, right? Like when you go out into the ocean. also feels kind of good. Salt purifies things. The sacrifices were to be salted to make them pure and holy. So maybe Jesus is saying, as, as salt purifies things, so you, my disciples, are to go out into the earth and, and to be its purifiers. Salt, salt also seasons things. Uh, without salt, things don't taste very good. It brings out the other flavors. It actually stimulates. In fact, did you know that until the 1800s, salt was used as a fertilizer? Did you know that? And the same was true in Jesus' day. Jesus picks up on this actually in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 14, 34-35, Jesus says this. Listen to this. Listen carefully. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's not useful anymore for soil or for the manure pile. Well, why would salt be useful for soil or the manure pile, except for the fact that ancients thought that it was a fertilizer? So maybe Jesus is saying, you're not, you're not just to go out and and preserve this decaying society. Which, by the way, if things that you preserve are things that you value. Jesus doesn't say the world is decaying and therefore we don't care about it. Jesus says the world and society and institutions are decaying. All things fall apart. The sinner does not hold and we care about it. And so I send you out. But maybe he's not just saying that you preserve it. Maybe he's saying even more so, you're actually supposed to be there as an active agent, stimulating its growth and its flourishing, like fertilizer. You were the salt of the earth. Well, whatever it is, it's very clear that what Jesus is saying is that that Christians are to have a profound and essential impact on the society and the world around them. Pam has recently, my wife, Pam, has recently taken up bread making. I don't know much about bread except that I'm really good at eating it. I'm not so good at making it. I didn't know much about making bread, but it is a really involved process. All right, so it's sourdough bread. She gets this starter months ago, 
And she's been feeding this starter and, and, and like caring for this starter. I mean, people name their starters because it is, it's like a baby, right? You've got to like care for it and nurture it and, until the, the starter gets strong and healthy, right? Yes, like a baby. If any of you are thinking, hmm, I don't know if I'm ready for a kid yet, try a starter. So first, you, you nurture the starter, and then you make the Levon. And the Levon then has to rise for 12 hours, 12 hours. And then after the Levon rises for 12 hours, you add extra flour, and then you let that rise for five hours. How do I know all this? I asked Pam. So then after that, you shape it, and it rises again, and then you bake it, and then you can eat it after, get this, like an 18-hour process. You know, she didn't, she didn't, she wasn't really tickled when I said to her, hey, how about we just have bread tomorrow? You know, you can make some fresh bread. You know, it's like, no, this is an 18, I've got to like schedule it out, clear the schedule, care for the starter, make sure he's happy. Pam brought out the bread and it looked amazing. Like it was, it was the, the shape and the density of these beautiful Austrian breads that I used to, to eat. And we cut it open and like it had the right, like, you know, all the little air holes and all that stuff. And, and it was dense. And, and then we, we both take a bite and we look at each other and she goes, yeah, I thought maybe I forgot something the salt. Have you ever tasted bread without salt? You haven't because it's tasteless. Like it literally is tasteless. I taste it. I'm like, how does this little ingredient add so much? Like it had no flavor. I mean, we, like I was thinking, what can we do with this bread? Well, we could throw it out and the birds could eat it or I could take it to communion uh, or <laughs> that's a way to get rid of it fast. Just kidding, I wouldn't do that. I mean, I'd do it to you, but you know, I need to honor the Lord. Uh, so, you know, we have this bread, and it's like, it's no longer any good, because there's this essential, like this tiny little essential ingredient that, that brings out all the flavor, but nothing. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. As essential as salt is to bread, so you are to the earth. Did you know that in the ancient world, the word for food and the word for bread in Greek is the same word because bread was so essential to the diet? Give us this day our daily bread. Bread was essential for life, and salt is essential for bread. And so Christians are essential for the life of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Well, here's what it looks like. It looks like Judge Paul Herbert in, Colum uh, in Columbus, Ohio. He's a small, like, claims judge who uh, was seeing lots of petty crimes and misdemeanors. And then he, he was kind of bored. It's a lot of, like, traffic stuff. It's, it's, it's you know, you, you left your flashers on too long. It's, it's you, were, you left your car this place, and he was like, oh, one after another of these, these kind of crimes. But then, in the same court, the other thing that he would pick up is he would see um, these women come in. And they were bruised, and they were beaten, and they were locked up like criminals. 
and he would look down at the notes and it would say prostitution. And he started looking into the laws and he noticed that there were like two words that were different. Two words between the laws against prostitution and someone who has been a victim of sex trafficking. Two words. And he said, this isn't right. Something, something's got to change. So he sets up an alternative court uh, called Claim that these women can opt into. And there, they don't enter a... Um, they don't enter a process of judgment and pay. They enter a process of rehabilitation. And not only then this rehabilitation teaches them, it, they're given the food and the shelter that they need, which is probably what got them on the street in the first place. They're given safety, which is keeping them away from their pimps. They're also given, they're also given job training. And I ate their food. And their sandwiches were amazing. And then he started thinking, you know, I get like 250, 300 prostitutes in here a year. And one or two Johns. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because there should be one and one if the crime is committed and, and, and if there's an arrest. So why are they arresting one and not the other? So then... He started making a law that they, they actually had to start arresting for every prostitute they had to bring in. They had to bring in a John. And they started hearing the John stories and realized all the pain and trauma that they had been through. And then he set up a rehabilitation program for them as well. Because he was sitting in his job bored because he was a low-level circuit, like a low-level judge. And he started praying to God and said, God, what would you have me do? Salt. So it looks like an automotive dealership in the southeast who started realizing that um, that they were making thirty percent more profit off the cars that are sold in the inner city and low income than the cars that are sold in the suburban area because those who are in this inner city do not know negotiate like who are in a poor area don't know negotiating skills or the powers that they can have. In that kind of uh, in that kind of situation, and so what they started doing was they lowered the prices thirty percent on the cars in their inner city dealership. And then what happened was uh, the margins, uh, even though the margins were way smaller, almost thin, people were flocking to it. And then they started looking at the employees that they had there, and they started asking, "What do we owe these people?" And they started seeing that they weren't having the same chances and their families weren't having the same chances to go to college. And so they set up a scholarship fund. Salt. Salt, it's, um, it's, it's businessmen and businesswomen in Phoenix who have set up a mentorship program for ex-gang members. And they come in and they pitch ideas because, you know, if you're in the gang, you're probably actually pretty, um, and, 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 and you're, you're actually probably pretty creative. You're a hustler. And so they start, they start pitching ideas like Shark Tank, and they give them microfinance loans, and they give them uh, mentorship, and they give them social capital, and they network them. 
so that, so that these folks who knew nothing but criminal life and, and gangs are now entrepreneurs starting businesses. Salt. You are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. And you are the light of the world, verse 14. But Joshua mentioned it earlier. I mean, light is essential to life. I mean, if you don't have light, you could fall, you could break your thumb. Even though Joshua didn't tell you this, that was during broad daylight. But, I mean, you can hurt yourself. You need light. But, do you know the first thing, the first thing God did? He created light. And God said, let there be light. It was the first, the essential act. And from that point forward, light has been associated with the presence and activity of God. It's why we keep the lights on when we worship. Because God is light. And in Him there is no darkness. He dwells in unapproachable light, and He is here. God is light. His presence and activity is light. And He called Israel, His chosen people, to be a light to the nations. And he called Jerusalem, his chosen city, to be a city set up on a hill. And there in Jerusalem, where the law were, and where the people were to live out the law, and where the sacrifices were, and where the temple was, where people would worship the living God, the place where heaven and earth touched, and where God dwelt, that place, that was to be a city set on a hill, a light to the nations, where the the nations, they would flock to it like moths flock to a lampstand. But, but Israel, they, they didn't do so good with that vocation. They hid their light. As Tom Wright says, they, they built the house of mirrors and they, they put a basket over the light. But, but you know, everybody knew exactly what Jesus was saying. When he calls his disciples up onto an amount, a mountain and he says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, you are the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. As Israel and Jerusalem were to the world, so you are to the world. I am, I am carrying on and sharing with you the vocation and the calling of Israel and of Jerusalem. You are to show people what human flourishing looks like. You are to show people, you are to be a city, a, a safe place, and show them the way to safety. And you are to show them the way back to God. Light. And here's what it looks like. It looks like a, a grocery store clerk who intentionally, intentionally remembered the names of each and every person who she checked out and would ask about their families and remember their families by name, would ask about their struggles and remember their struggles by name. And you know what? Like People would wait in lines for this woman to check them out. That were, All the other lanes would be empty, and they would wait in her line. Because when they would come back through, she would always say, before they left, she would say, thank you for telling me that. I will pray for you. And then when they would come back through, she would say, tell me about your daughter. Tell me about what's going on with this. What happened with that? I prayed for it. 
and they would give, him, uh, give her an update. And then she might say something like this. Well, praise God, he, he, he answered our prayer and he loves you. And, and at her funeral, it was standing room only because, because she was light and she loved with the love that she had been received. Light. It, it looks like a church plant of ours in Alhambra where, where seven people are gathering to hear about Jesus and investigate the claims of Christ who have who have never heard the story of the gospel, who know nothing of Jesus and what he has done. And they're asking questions on a, on a weekly basis. Light. Light. It, it looks like 250 college students up and down the West Coast going down to San Diego a couple, year, uh, a couple weeks ago and hearing uh, at, our, at our RUF conference and hearing about the gospel and seeing Christian community and looking, uh, looking at what it looks like to live in that community. And, and, and guess what? Many of you, many of you paid to sponsor those students so that they didn't pay a dime to go down there and experience that. Light. Light. It looks like Lee Nash, the lead singer of Sixpence, None the Richer, a uh, Grammy awarded uh, artist playing her uh, playing a song on David Letterman and having a little time after and David Letterman he comes up and he asks her hey that's kind of a funny name for a band Sixpence None the Richer what's that all about she goes well there's this author his name's C.S. Lewis and he wrote this book called Mere Christianity and in that book he he describes a, a little boy who asks his father if he can get a sixpence which is a very small amount of English currency if he can get the sixpence to go and get a gift for his father, and the father gladly accepts the gift. And he's really happy with it, but he also realizes that he's not any richer for the transaction. And that's what faith is like. God is not any richer for the transaction, but it delights him, and it humbles us. And she said it on national TV. Light. Light. And you say, well, Kyle, that's, that's Lee Nash, and that's sixpence none the richer. I could never be like that. I mean, I, I'm not that talented. Uh, okay? But just consider who Jesus says this to. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. A tax collector and a bunch of fishermen... marginalized, certainly not influential in any way because of, their, because of their spheres of influence, because of where they grew up, because of where they come from. And in fact, it's not just tax collectors and fishermen. It's persecuted tax collectors and fishermen. Look at verses 11 and 12 just before this. Blessed are you, he turns to his disciples and said, blessed are you because you are the blessed ones I'm talking about. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So they persecuted the prophets before you who were uh, prophets who were before you. And then he says, you even you, emphatically, you, persecuted fishermen and tax collectors, even you, marginalized, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And he doesn't say you can be. 
He doesn't say you have the potential to be if you just get your act together. He doesn't say go be. He says you are. It's your very nature. Salt of the earth and light of the world. If you are a disciple of Jesus, this is who you are. Because this is what Jesus has proclaimed over you. Salt of the earth and light of the world. So if that's the nature of our calling, what are the implications? Well, I have, um, I have seven here, so we'll just be here for the next, I don't know, three hours. Number one, you are to live out this calling. We are to live out this calling selflessly. Think about this for a second. Light is meant to shine. And salt is meant for food. Salt's actually not good in itself. Like, have you ever just had salt for dinner? Of course you haven't. Right? You don't use salt. Salt always does something to something else. Salt stimulates something else. Salt causes something else to flourish. Salt brings out the taste in something else. Salt is not good on its own. and It is not good for itself. Salt is for something else. And so you, Christian, are for the world. That's your vocation. Archbishop William Temple said the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Or as Jonathan Pennington said in his commentary, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be an outward focused agent of the kingdom. One of our values here is that we, we believe that God is on a mission and we exist not for ourselves but for the mission of God. We exist for the life of the world. Salt and light. There are so many ways that I can apply this, but let me just make a very practical way that I can apply it to every person in this room. Um, when you come on a Sunday morning, just ask yourself the question, what can I do that would help outsiders come in? Where can I sit? That would make it easier for outsiders to come in. Who can I talk to? That would make it easier for outsiders to come in. What kinds of conversations can I have and language should I use to make it easier for outsiders to come in? Because we exist not for ourselves but for others. So that they might be drawn to the light. You are salt and you are light. You are to live out this calling selflessly. We want to be a church for others. Second, live out this calling distinctly. Verse 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. See, what makes salt work is that it actually retains the properties of salt. If it no longer has the properties of salt, then it's not going to do what salt's supposed to do. And in the same way, the Christian community is actually to retain the properties of the Christian community. They're actually to live distinct lives. Different. You know, I, I um, growing up, I have a confession to make. I, I, I didn't go to youth group and I hated it. 
and that's why I didn't go. I didn't hate the fact that I didn't go. I, I love the fact that I didn't go. I hated youth group. And the reason I hated youth group was simply this. Um, I, I went to youth group, and it was like, if I have to play one more game where we toss a banana to one another until it like, I'm like, this is so lame. My friends and I, like, we have four-wheelers and bottle rockets and PCP pipe, right? That's what we do to entertain ourselves. We shoot fireworks at each other. And you're going to have me play the banana toss? Like, what is this? Why am I going to waste my time doing the banana toss when I can be lighting my friend on fire with a bottle rocket? <laughs> like, I hated youth group until I found a youth group that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to me. Until I found a youth group where the youth pastor took the time to relate the gospel to the struggles, the everyday struggles that I really faced and really had. Until I found a place to actually like teach me the hymns of the church and tunes that I could sing and understand. And then I was in youth group every week. You know, like, Young Life is known for its games. And one of the if, if there's a game that Young Life is known for more than any other, it's Chubby Bunny. Do you know Chubby Bunny? This might take a little while. Chubby Bunny is where you stick mouth and marshmallows in your mouth, and then you have to say Chubby Bunny until you can't say Chubby Bunny anymore because you have so many marshmallows. Guess what? This is a little dangerous, and so they outlawed it. Laws against it. No more Chubby Bunny. You know, and everybody, I, I, I swear, if we don't have Chubby Bunny, like, Young Life is going to shut down, right? There's going to be no more Young Life. How are we going to do this? Because that's the game. I mean, we're going to be, like, resigned to that game where you do, like, rock, paper, scissors, but you do, like, gorillas and things like that. That's not, <laughs> like, that's not fun. We need Chubby Bunny, right? But you, you know what? People kept going to Young Life. Do you know Why? Because kids were never drawn to Young Life because of Chubby Bunny. Kids were drawn to Young Life because they had actually an older adult who wasn't their peer invest in their lives and ask them, like, tell me your story. And tell me your hurts and tell me your struggles. And Jesus is with you and he loves you. And I want to speak that to you particularly. That's why, that's why kids went to Young Life. That's why they still go to Young Life. Because they have people who are older than them, like actually invest in them who aren't their parents and minister the love of Jesus to them. We're to be a distinct people. The church has something to offer that nobody else does. And go somewhere else to get a concert. That's why I want to hear you sing. I can turn on some great, great Christian music or worship song. I can turn on other music in my car and rock out by myself. I need to hear you sing on a Sunday morning because I can't do that in my home. And I can't do that in my car. And so we want to make sure that, you, that we, we hear you sing because we're offering something that is distinct here. The Christian community is to live distinctly. The, the Christian community is to live this out. You are to live this out, thirdly, pervasively. Light is meant to fill the house. That's the point of verse 15. And salt is meant to saturate food. You are to bear the light into the confines of daily life as well as the wider world. You, you are to be rubbed into every nook and cranny of this society, whether that is medicine or music, entertainment or engineering, surfing or sewing. 
wherever there is life, so Christians are to be. As Ernst Kaseman said, light of the world and salt of the earth apply either everywhere, every time, and radically, or not at all. And so here's my question for you. What corner of the earth are you, is Jesus calling you to be rubbed into? Is it, I mean, we have so many people in here who are in the medical industry. Is it, is it Samsung Clinic and Cottage Hospital is the medical industry? Is, is, it, is it the universities and the, and, and the higher education uh, places, institutions of higher education in this city? Is, is it into our schools? Is it, is it into the cycling community or the coffee shop? Or where is it? Jesus is calling you to be and to go. And to pervade. And he knows the temptation. And the temptation is that we will huddle up. Because. Let's be honest. The light exposes things. And sometimes people don't like it. I don't like it. I mean I don't like it when. When when my dusty room. The sun hits it just the right way. And you see all the dirt. I'm like no. You know I run out. The dust bunny. Scary. Those dust bunnies are scary. Seriously, though, you get persecuted. That's what he just said, verses 11 and 12. And the danger then is to huddle up and be safe. Jesus says, no. Salt of the earth, light of the world. Live this out pervasively. Fourth, live it wisely. Verse 13 says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste. But Jesus is actually using a play on words here that doesn't come off in the English. I I was actually really shocked when I read it in the Greek. Because in the Greek, it literally says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become foolish. If the salt has become foolish. It's a play on words to talk about tastelessness, but it's to become foolish. Like, you know, like when you do something that lacks taste. It's foolish. You're to actually live this out wisely. Sometimes we think that, that, that actually if, if we just, if, you know, when, if I forget the salt, then what I'll do, that's what we tried to do, I'll take a big thing of salt and I'll put it on one place and I'll just dump it on the corner of the bread. Guess what? It didn't taste good. It has to pervade and it has to be put on wisely. That is that there is an art to seasoning food. You know this if you're a chef. You can't just dump it all in in one place. You actually have to to think about how you season it and when you season it in the cooking process. And in the same way, Christians are to live out this calling as salt and light wisely in every nook and cranny. And if you don't live it wisely, guess what happens? It's no longer good for anything. But it'd be trampled. And thrown underfoot. Fifth, we are to live out this calling visibly. Verse 15 says, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. See, while you cannot produce the light, listen to me, you cannot produce the light. You cannot be the light. You cannot become the light. You are the light. You cannot produce it, but you can hide it. You can distort it. And so Jesus says, do not hide the light. 
Rather, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Wait a second. But Jesus, aren't you about to tell me that like I'm not supposed to do my righteousness visibly? Like I'm supposed to go into my closet when I pray and I'm not supposed to know what the left hand is doing or the right hand is doing? Like, wait a second. But now you're saying that like I'm supposed to do it and like broadcast it so everybody can see? What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. Here's the difference. The difference is motive. So that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. People don't look at the lampstand, they look at the light. People don't glorify your good works, they glorify the Father. But we have to actually live this out in the presence of others and in the public sphere for the life of the world if anybody is going to see it. Again, to be a disciple is to be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom, as Jonathan Pennington says, inviting people to honor and to glorify God. We're to live this out visibly. We're also to live it out communally. While Jesus is calling us each as individuals, as individual pieces of salt to permeate this world, he is also calling us to be a city. And a city is a society. It's a community. We're to actually share this life together and do this together. And people are actually, there is something that is a part of the, that is a part of the whole. There's something that the whole offers that the individual parts can't offer on their own. People cannot see the way that we love one another. People cannot see the giving and exchanging of gifts and reciprocity that we have for one another, which is the giving and exchanging of grace, which makes that visible, unless we do it together. And so we have to do this communally, as a city. And finally, we have to live this out dependently. You know, before Jesus ever utters the words, you are the light of the world, we read in Matthew's gospel, chapter 16 and 17, or Matthew chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And it wasn't the community of Jesus' disciples. For those dwelling in the region and in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then it says, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach. He is the light. He is the light, and we, our light is all derivative. It's all reflective. As the moon reflects the light of the sun, so we reflect his light. And he is the salt. The Davidic covenant about the Messiah was called the covenant of salt Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, a perpetual covenant for you and for me. He is the salt of the covenant, and he is the light of the world, and we depend on him. So, so if you are saying to yourself right now, Kyle, you don't know me, you don't know what I've done, you don't know how I've screwed it up, you don't know what my, how my life is in shambles, there's no way that I can be the light, I can be salt, and I can be light. This can't be true of me. Then you have no idea what we are pointing people to. Your best works and every good work that you have points people to Jesus 
as the author of those good works. And guess what? Your worst sins and all your failures, they also point people to Jesus. As you say, I need a Savior, and we all do. So come, follow me to where the salt and where the light is. This is how we bear witness. I was sitting in, a, I was sitting in our presbytery, our regional denominational meeting uh, yesterday at a worship service, and I have to say that it was, it, it, it was depressing. It was one of the most, we were in this drab building and the carpets were shabby and the singing was like off pitch and off tune. And I'm looking around at everybody and I'm looking at these ministers and man, I don't know if they have mirrors in their homes. I, I got up before there was light. The preacher lost his way and like rambled for like an hour or something. I mean, it was, it was a train wreck. It was a train wreck. And then I'm thinking, Lord, how are we supposed to make an impact in southern central California? How on earth could we be salt and light? And then I start hearing stories about people coming to know Jesus. About people's lives being redeemed and restored. About rescue. And then I come to the table where this is like a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine, gifts that are given. And I'm coming around it with these other folks, and I, and I sit there and I think to myself, man, the life of the world, the life of the world, and small and inconvenient and, 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 and ugly and, and not grandiose ways, the life of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the life of the world. And, and I sat there in the shower this morning, and I was just thinking about how awful that worship service was. And then I thought about Jesus' words, you are, to a tax collector and a bunch of fishermen who are marginalized and persecuted. And indeed, you are because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.